Well, the title of our lesson this morning is Blessed Assurance, and our lesson is all about assurance of salvation. We sang this morning Fanny Crosby's great hymn, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, Oh, What a Foretaste of Glory Divine. But unfortunately, some Christians really struggle with the assurance of salvation. Wretched endurance, heartache is mine. Oh, what a distaste of doubt all the time. I trust that that's not your experience, but we do want to answer one question from the book of 1 John this morning, and the question is, how do you know that you have eternal life? Now, we've been talking about that in our study of 1 John. But the answer to this question is why John wrote the book of 1 John. And we see that in 1 John 5.13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. If you would like to know this morning that you have eternal life, listen carefully because that's the topic that we're going to be working on from this passage. Now, we wish that you had been able to be with us on Wednesday night at uh, prayer meeting. We also have been learning how to study the Bible. And there are some interesting things there. In fact, as you start studying the Bible, there's much more there than you realize at the beginning. But we saw that some passages are easy to understand. The structure is clear. But in other passages, there are devices that are used to give a better, clearer insight to the passage. And we see one of those devices in today's passage. It's called bookends or bracketing. We see something at the beginning of the passage where it's introduced in verse 19. 18 just tied us in from last week. And then we see the other end in verse 24. So let's look at those. And by this we know, that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Then at the end of our passage, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. By this we know. Know what? Know that we are in the truth and that he abides in us. So our question now would be, what is this by which we know? And we'll find it between the bookends. And as we go through, we're going to be reading some of those verses. And I trust that you have your Bible so that you may mark some things in the Bible to come back to them later. If you don't, there is a Bible in the pew. Cultivating assurance. This is not just something that we're waiting to float down out of heaven on a cloud to us. It's something that we can do, that we can grow and cultivate. Before we answer this question, let me give you a little bit of historical perspective on how to deal with the answer. First, the Reformed or Calvinistic position would be this. Once saved, forever saved, and this salvation will bear evidence in your life. You can see it, and others will see it. Then the Arminian or the Wesleyan position, once saved not forever saved, and you can lose your salvation and any evidence that you had of it. 
Now, the difference essentially is this. If salvation is from God, then he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And we see some other important scriptures there. That was Philippians 1, 6, Romans 8, 30, beginning in 30. Uh, That would tell us that moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. And whom he called, he justified. And whom he justified, he glorified. And what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? And who shall separate the love of God? And he goes through a lot of things, and we see nothing can separate us from the word of God. But if salvation is essentially from man, you chose it. And later on, if the belief goes sour on you, then you could unchoose it. And that would be basically the difference in these two different systems of approaching the Scripture. Now, we can see in life that there's an element of truth in that latter system because we do see people who were living for Christ and something comes up in their lives And they turn from Christ and begin living a life of sin. And there never seems to be any different from that, even after having professed Christ at an earlier time in their lives. Well, we would say if your faith fizzles at the finish, it was faulty from the first. But those would be the two options that you had historically when it comes to assurance of salvation. Now we can offer you a third option, which we'll call the modern position. Once saved, forever saved, but there may be no evidence at all of that salvation in your life. In fact, according to this view, there can be evidence to the contrary. It doesn't matter. You're still saved. You can live a sinful lifestyle. You can love the world. You can have absolutely nothing to do with the church except to get married and get buried someday. In fact, uh, you don't have to have any desire for holiness, zero desire for holiness, and you you, you may never give a thought to repentance, but you would still be a a believer according to this view. All you have to do is believe, not in the sense of trust, but in the sense of just an intellectual belief that it's true. There is a God. He sent his son. He loves me. There's nothing that I could do bad enough to make him mad. So everything is going to be all right. Just calm down. What we see in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and perish. They believe that there is a God. Really, what you seem to be in this modern position would be an unbelieving believer. Or would that be a believing unbeliever? I'm not sure exactly which it would be, but it doesn't seem to be the position that we find in Scripture. Now, you could easily see if you were in a church like that, you wouldn't be too worried about assurance of salvation because there wouldn't be any question in your mind. All you have to do is raise your hand, say, I believe, fill out a card, join the church, whatever, and you would be saved forever even though your life doesn't change at all. 
And the way you know you would be saved, according to this view, would be an inner feeling based on experience. Well, we've already learned in previous lessons in 1 John that if you do have salvation, it's going to bear evidence in your life if you are truly saved. Now, let's take a look at some of these verses that are structured the very same as our verses today in 1 John 3. 1 John 2, 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 1 John 2, 5. And whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he, Jesus, walked. Now we said he won't be walking perfectly, but he'll be going in Jesus' direction instead of the world's direction. Same thing again, 1 John 4, 6. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us, John and his friends who have the word. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. 1 John 4.13 By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Has anyone ever heard of the fruit of the spirit? Where you have the root, there's going to have to be some fruit. Now obviously there will be varying degrees of fruit depending on the maturity of the believer but there's going to be some sign of life there if you're really on the team. 1 John 5, verses 1 and 2. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born to him. Now here's a good just-believe verse, and there are a lot of believe verses in the Scripture. Whoever believes in that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. All you got to do is believe that Jesus is the Messiah and love fellow believers. But look at the very next verse. Verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. It kind of comes as a package, you see. And it's not just about what's going on in my heart. It's about what's happening in my life because what's happening in my life is really going to be flowing out of what's in my heart. Now let's take a look again at our bookends for today's lesson. At the beginning, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth, we learned last Sunday, by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. And then at the conclusion of our passage, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So the first important, this is how we know, in this passage would be true love of brothers and sisters in Christ. Back in another lesson, our lesson from last week, chapter 3, verse 11, for this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And then in verse 18, we learn that we have to love one another in actions, in truth, and not just things that we say about our love for others. 
There are over 40 references in the New Testament to one another. So that would be very important. And a lot of instructions are given to us about what we're supposed to do with fellow believers and what we're not supposed to do. Here would be some love one another, prefer one another, don't wrongfully judge one another, receive one another, greet one another, serve one another, don't bite or devour one another. If you ever really get your feelings hurt, it'll probably be by one another, probably be by another Christian because the world doesn't care what you're doing as long as you don't interfere with them. Forgive one another, exhort one another, consider one another how to stir up one another to love and good works. So we see a lot of instruction here about loving the brethren, as the King James says. But what if you attend a church where there is strong Bible teaching, raising a standard of holiness, obedience to the commandments of God, repentance from all known sin, and energetic preaching, energetic preaching of the gospel? What if you went to a church like that? With all of that flowing on Sunday, your assurance of salvation might become slightly anemic because you might be experiencing a hyperactive conscience that is assaulting your mind with a lot of questions all the time, causing you to wonder. And we see that in our passage in verse 20. For if our heart condemns us, your heart would be your conscience, God is greater than our heart, and He knows all things. What kind of questions does my conscience bring up? Am I really living a holy life? I know there's some commandments I have trouble with, especially looking at Christ's interpretation in the Sermon on the Mount, and there's always covetousness. Oh, am I really saved? Do I really know the Lord? Does the gospel mean as much to me as it did those guys in the book of Acts? Sometimes there's a little gap there in my thinking. When all is said and done, Am I really going to heaven? Is it actually true? What if I miss something? Am I asking God to forgive me the same old sins over and over again? Have I repented sufficiently of these things? So our conscience can bring up all kinds of questions that might disturb our peace of mind. Now, if your conscience is speaking to you, praise the Lord, because your conscience is your warning system. And your conscience is to your soul what pain is to your body. And you can think of the disease of leprosy that destroys the sensory nerves in your extremities and even in your body. And what that means is you may touch something that is hot and you never know it. You may step on something that is sharp or walk on some hot coals, and you never know it, and it just injures your foot. You might even drink something that's too hot, and you literally just wear out your fingers because you put too much pressure on them. Uh, you may be working, and you rub a blister on your hand, but you don't know it, and you just keep on going, and it gets deeper and deeper, and it goes down into the bone, begins to wear away the bone. Well, our conscience prevents us from 
that happening in our soul, in our inner person of our heart. That conscience is going to help warn us of moral danger. Just like these nerves God has put in our body warns us of pain. We can tell whether we're touching a feather or the prick of a pen. But the conscience can be fooled. Now, our culture shouts loudly to your conscience that what the Bible says is sin is not sin. What is really sin is the narrow-mindedness of Christians. And the world says we need to be tolerant about everything except intolerance of those Bible thumpers over there. And when that message is shouted loudly enough and long enough, sometimes our conscience can get a little confused with that. And then those that are not explicitly promoting sin may tell you that you need to feel good about yourself. You're all right, man. In fact, you need a good dose of self-esteem. Well, that's not exactly what the Bible says. I remember when I was a young man... A couple of guys who were insurance executives came to my office at the church, and they were there to talk about insurance, but they were attending a church in that city, and they were talking about, very excitedly, about a new book that was out, Pop Psychology, I'm Okay, You're Okay. What had just happened in staff meeting that week, we had been talking about that book and what an erroneous approach to anything that really was. And they were excited because they were teaching that book in Sunday school. And they were telling me about it. And unfortunately, I had to let them know, I'm not okay and you're not okay unless you have been forgiven of your sin through your personal commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, they didn't want to hear that, and we had a pretty good argument that day. But see, the world says, just build up your self-esteem. Everything is going to be okay. We're saying that that can be misleading to your conscience. But if you hear it enough, you read about it enough, you may find your conscience going a little different direction. Now, there's a third thing that can happen to your conscience, and that is you can violate your own conscience. Begin beginning early in your teen years, perhaps, and going right on up until you're known as a grown-up. And that way, your conscience just gets fried. The Bible says your conscience can become seared with a hot iron, 1 Timothy 4.2. In Texas, I think that would be a branding iron. Your conscience will be toast if you're just setting it aside all the time and violating it, especially at an early age when it is sensitive. You can sear your conscience. A much better prospect would be found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now the washing of the body with pure water alludes to some of the ceremonial washings that the Jewish people did. And it might refer to baptism, a symbol of holiness. But sometimes with strong Bible teaching, even a healthy conscience can become overactive and launch you into a guilt trip when really nothing's wrong. And full assurance, full forgiveness has been accomplished. We have to be very careful to take our heart back to Scripture. 
Because God tells us some things in the Word about our hearts. What does He say? He says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. He also tells us, verse we've seen many times, Proverbs 28, 26, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. So it's imperative that as a believer, I cultivate the habit of trusting in the Word and what it says and not leaning on my own understanding. Because my own understanding might come out of my heart that's misled. My conscience might be on vacation for a while. And that's how we get into problems. God is greater than your heart. Verse 20. That's not big news, but that is good news. God is omniscient, and He knows everything. And He knows what's the truth about what's happening in your heart. He knows whether you need to be acquitted of what your conscience is saying, or whether you're really guilty and you need to repent. And through His Spirit, He can guide you whichever way you need to go. Of course, you've got to be in communication with Him to be able to get that guidance. If, in fact, you're acquitted and you have a clear conscience, you can move on to greater confidence, and that's what we come to next, praying with confidence. Of course, before you can pray with confidence, what do you have to do first? You've got to pray. You've got to pray at all, and then you can pray with confidence. Here's the passage out of our uh, verses we're looking at. Uh, Chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. A clear conscience can be a tremendous blessing. It can help you sleep well at night. It can protect you from fear. It can give you peace of mind. It can give you a greater freedom in prayer. The word for confidence in verse 21 means boldness and an openness and a freedom just to speak what's on your mind. And, of course, that's what we can do when we come to God. If we need to confess something, we can confess something and know that that's covered. I would rarely ever use a paraphrase, but I want to read to you a verse from Kenneth Taylor's paraphrase, and here it is, Psalm 32.1. What happiness for those whose guilt has been forgiven. What joys when sins are covered. What relief for those who have confessed their sins and God has cleared their records. Now, we want to be sure we understand that we don't earn answers to prayer by maintaining a clear conscience or by obeying God's commands, or by pleasing Him, or loving others, or doing anything else. None of these things are meritorious on our part, where we say, God, I put my quarter in now, I want my uh, blessing in answer to prayer. But these things do indicate that we are on praying ground, meaning that our actions as a trend of life, now very important, our actions as a trend of life, tend to confirm that we're in the will of God. And when we're in the will of God, we're in the place where God can and will answer our prayer. Is that biblical? Well, yes, it is. 1 Peter 3, 7. It says, if a husband 
does not live with his wife in an understanding way, his prayers will be hindered. And if his conscience is alive, it will be speaking to him until he does begin to seek to live with his wife in an understanding way. Now, I don't want my prayers to be hindered by that or by anything else. What else might hinder your prayer? Well, here's a possibility. James chapter 4, verse verse 2. You desire and you do not have, so you commit murder. Uh, That would have been King David in the case of Uriah the Hittite. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not do what? Pray. Exactly right. You do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. If we maintain a clear conscience, obey God's commands, do what pleases Him, love other believers, not in word, but in actions and in truth, we will more nearly qualify as to praying according to God's will. And those are the kind of prayers with right motives that He loves to answer in the affirmative. So, praying with confidence. And that's the way we want to be able to pray. Got to be on praying ground. Obeying as evidence. Here comes the this by which we may know that we are in Christ and He is in us. 1 John three twenty three, And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Here's the central thrust of our passage today. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us a couple things that we need to do. He wants us to believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, and he wants us to love fellow believers. Now, there are a couple of other things there, too, but these are two important ones. What does it mean to believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ? Well, I think it means to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one. John has already told us who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Christ means the anointed one or the Messiah. This is the Antichrist the one who denies the Father and the Son. Now, the passage indicates there are many antichrists. Whoever is against Christ, the world is against Christ, the world system. Well, it means to believe for the truth everything the Old Testament says about Christ. One day Christ was walking along the road to Emmaus with a couple of guys that were trying to interpret the events of his crucifixion And they didn't recognize him, and he began talking to them in Luke 24, verse 44. He said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds that they could understand the Scriptures. He opens our minds. We have the mind of Christ. He sent his Spirit to help us understand all the things that are written about him before he even came upon this earth as a man. Then it means to believe that he is all that he says he is. What did he say? I and the Father are one. 
If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He claims to be able to do what only the Father can do, as we saw last week, to forgive sin. So a lot of times people say, well, he never claimed to be God. Well, he never claimed to be the Messiah. Well, if you're studying the New Testament, you see that it's all over the place. And you can pull out verses that say he is a man, certainly. He is a man and he is God. So John writes about him, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true and in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So this exhortation to believe in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ, and to love the brothers is shored up by two powerful pillars in our, pas- in our passage. In verses 19 through 22, when our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, giving us assurance that we receive what we ask of Him in prayer. Now, if we're not praying according to His will, we don't expect that that's going to hold true. If we're doing these things that John suggests, we're going to nearly, more nearly, be praying according to his will. Second pillar is in verse 24. We can have this blessed assurance we've been talking about that God lives in us and we abide in him. We know this by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. I've heard this verse already this morning. Did you hear it? Romans 8.16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That ought to give us some assurance. The spirit is testifying. We do have an internal testimony, but we don't depend on that because our hearts might be fooling us. We depend on what's going on here in our lives on a daily basis, moment by moment. Now, we're talking about the Holy Spirit bearing witness. We're not talking about a feeling or a sense of euphoria that may come or a mystical sign that God gives on a brilliant sunlit morning. We're not talking about things like that. We're not talking about an event, something that happened, a prayer that you prayed or you walked down the aisle or you were baptized in the creek. All those things are good. And it might be an indication of a true belief and trust in Christ that's in your heart. But we're really talking about not what happened 13 years ago, but what's happening in the now, in the right now in your life. Are these things evident? Are you really trusting Christ daily, moment by moment? And do you really love the brothers and sisters who have made the same commitment? Now, if you really love someone, you have to be with them. And typically, where you're going to see the brothers and sisters in the course of the week, you see them all over the place, maybe. They live near you. But you'll see them at church. So you're going to come here to be with them because you love them and because you like to have that fellowship with them on Sundays. Now, don't get me wrong. We love others, too. Uh, We love people in the world. We try to lead them to Christ. We even love our enemies, But the mark of a Christian is his love for fellow believers. We're told that in John 13, 35, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
Now, we've been talking about in our bookends, by this, we know. But in this case, everybody's going to know because they can see that love in your interaction for others. If you had lived in 1741 in the New England region of America, you would have probably really been interested in assurance of salvation because you would have been hearing guys like Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan Edwards preach. And sometimes he brought a sermon like sinners in the hands of an angry God. And right in the worship service, people would start crying out and shrieking, oh, I'm going to hell. What must I do to be saved? Well, the Apostle John anticipated those questions. And he gives us the answer to those things very clearly. He wants us to enjoy a robust faith and full assurance of our salvation. So the little book of 1 John is filled with assurances. But let's take a look here as we wind it up. Let's take a look at six that we could see right in this short little passage. Six assurances of salvation in our passage for today. Well, love one another. We've talked about that. It's at the beginning. It's over toward the end in verse 23. This is how we know we're of the truth and assure our hearts before him if we have love of the brothers. And, of course, that love has got to be not just what we're talking about. Oh, I love that guy. It's got to be what we're doing, how we're expressing that love in everyday life. Number two, now, this one might be kind of hard to see, but I'm saying recognition of God's omniscience and gratitude for it. God knows everything. God is not just influenced by some fleeting thought that's going through my conscience that throws me off base. If I am really his child, he's going to send his spirit and his spirit is going to bring conviction and I'm going to recognize that I'm misled over here and I'm going to get it back on that straight and narrow path through the power of his spirit. God is greater than my heart and he knows everything. Have you ever felt like you knew better than God did? God, why did you do this instead of doing this over here? I had this all figured out. I was ready to go. And here you are putting me in Kazakhstan or somewhere. Well, sometimes God has a plan that is much greater than, and all the time he has a plan, much greater than our plan. Sometimes our plan just coexists. Number three, confidence in prayer. If our conscience is clear, we can have confidence in God that we receive from him our request in prayer. Now remember, the request that we prayed might be immediately answered. It could be delayed but not denied. It could be different than we anticipated. It could be given progressively a little bit at a time, and then the answer could be no. So we want to be sure that we're open to what God is doing through prayer. And then number four, obedience to God's commands. Our actions in obeying God's commands indicate that we're in the will of God. Therefore, we're in a place where God can and will answer prayer. Then faith in Christ. We believe in his name. God's command is that we have faith in Christ and love the brethren. 
presence of his Holy Spirit. Obedience is evident that, evidence that we are in Christ and he is in us. We know he lives in us by the witness of his Spirit. And he goes on to say, And love one another just as he commanded, and the one who keeps his commandments abides in him. Those seem to be two very important aspects of these six assurances. Love the brothers, keep his commandments. And of course, one of his commandments is to have faith in Christ. But it's easy to say, I have faith in Christ. If I'm obeying his commands, uh, that would be an indication that it's really true in my heart. How could anyone miss the clear teaching of Scripture? I'll tell you how. Pull out a statement here, pull out another statement over there, but if you go through verse by verse and you look at the context and you see what's going on in the passage and the purpose of the author in writing the passage, you couldn't mistake this thing about assurance reading through the book of 1 John. But if I just pull out a verse out of 1 John that says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I might think, all i got to do is just believe that He exists. He's there, and He loves me. And that's pretty easy to believe. But if I really put my trust in Him, then I'm going to be believing in Him the way Spurs fans believe in the Spurs. It doesn't matter what the scoreboard says. They still believe in the Spurs. They've got the flags flying on their car. They're still the fans waiting until next year. They're reading the statistics and the reports about who's retiring and who's coming back and who we traded for. They believe in the Spurs. Well, if we believe in Jesus, we're going to be interacting with him in every way. Let me read a very uh, short word here from a Puritan golden treasury. This would be Thomas Watson. Whenever God pardons sin, he subdues it. And then he quotes Micah 7:19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Then is the condemning power of sin, the condemning power of sin, taken away when the commanding power of sin is taken away. If a criminal be in prison, now we don't like to think of ourselves as criminals, but we do break God's law. If a criminal be in prison, how shall he know that his prince has pardoned him? If a jailer comes and knocks off his chains and fetters and lets him out of prison, then he may know that he's pardoned. So how shall we know that God hath pardoned us? If the fetters of sin be broken off and we walk at liberty in the ways of God, this is a blessed sign that we are pardoned. That's the best assurance that you can have is to be living for Christ on a daily basis. Now, there's one other approach to assurance, and I probably ought to mention it uh, very briefly here because we've not talked about it today. And that is to study the life of the prince, the prince of peace in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. Study his life so that you become so familiar with his characteristics that you trust him to tell you the truth and to do what he promised to do. Then that gives us assurance as well because you can know if you're doing that, you're going to be delighting in all these other things that he's talked to us about. 
Have you ever uh, taken a trip? I know Michael Clark takes a lot of trips, but you go to the airport sometimes and it's a full flight and you see people waiting for the flight and there are two groups of people. One group would be relaxed and maybe they're taking a little snooze or they're reading a book or reading the paper or looking at the TV monitor and they're just waiting and ready to go. But another group is a little bit nervous. They're on standby and they're up there at the desk talking to the lady and they're looking at their watches and they're carrying on little hushed conversations among others who are on standby. And they don't have much confidence because they know they might get in and they might not get in. And they really need to get in. But if you have a confirmed seat on that flight, you're going to be able to relax and take it easy. Now, if you have a confirmed place in heaven, that doesn't mean we relax and take it easy. But what that means is we are at ease. We have peace of mind. We can do God's work in a way that is more effective, more efficient, because I'm not worried about, oh, where do I really stand? Am I really on the team? So what about you this morning? Do you have a real good life assurance policy? Now, if there is any question in your mind, then there's a simple remedy. All you have to do right now is just say in your heart, Lord Jesus, I don't know what I did when I was 10 years old, but today I know I want to have a place, excuse me, a place with you in eternity, and I want to invest my life for the sake of your kingdom. So I'm asking you to come into my heart, take control of my life, forgive my sin, make me the kind of person that you want me to be one who delights in serving you. It's a simple thing. It may not be easy, but that's the way to get on track and remove those doubts if there is a doubt of your salvation, shall we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have communicated to us accurately and sufficiently in the Scripture. We thank you, Lord, that it's all there And as we study it, we see what you have intended for us to know and understand. And we see today that you have intended for us to love other believers even as we love you. And we see the summary that you have given, that we love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love others as ourselves, especially brothers and sisters in the Lord. Lord, I thank you for a church where there is commitment to love and unity and concern and compassion for others. And we ask, Lord, that you would make that a characteristic of our lives throughout our lives and everywhere we go. I would pray if there's someone here today who has some question or some doubt about his or her standing with you, that this would be the moment of truth, that this would be the moment of confidence before you. And I pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.